0: Sorry, I'm I'm losing my train of thought here.
1: That's okay. I, I pointed at you and you weren't ready.
0: I well I was <laughs>
1: <laughs> You were writing something.
0: <laughs> no, I was writing down diuretics poison to the kidney. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, I was like I was like, how do I want to tackle this? Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matt the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I hear we got a good one today. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Well, hello. Stuart Kent Brigham. That's right. Paul Nelson Williams, not here. No. Stuck in the hospital. Moment of silence for Paul, please. Taking care of business. That was a very short
1: moment of silence.
0: Oh, sorry. That's
1: okay. Anyways, so today we have a very special guest. It's Dr. Joel Toff. He's known within the nephrology circles for his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, The Musings of a Salt Whisperer. Dr. Toff is a board-certified nephrologist and partner at St. Clair Nephrology. He holds academic appointments as assistant clinical professor at the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and academic faculty for the St. John Hospital Medical Center Nephrology Fellowship. He is best known through his Twitter handle, at kidney underscore boy. We are very lucky to have Dr. Top with us today, and his enthusiasm for diuretics and all things nephrology is <laughs> incredibly infectious. If you don't follow him on Twitter, please just stop the podcast right now. Open up Twitter and follow him now. No, seriously. Stop the podcast right now.
0: Calm calm down, Stuart. They have plenty of time. Okay. It's, Twitter's not going anywhere.
1: It, I hear it is. Anyways.
0: Please enjoy the show. I promised Matt not to be salty this time. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matt. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing tonight?
1: Salty as ever.
0: <laughs> Salty. Uh, yes, that's a good segue to introduce our expert for tonight, Dr. Joel Toff. Hi, Dr. Toff.
2: Hey. Hello.
0: So, Dr. Toff, you are, uh, you are, you call yourself at Kidney Boy on Twitter, and also have been known to be called the Salt Whisperer. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody else has ever called me the salt whisperer, but you, uh lots of people call me uh kidney boy.
0: I think
1: salt whisperer is gonna stick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh one of the better Twitter names I've heard, uh definitely in the medical world, probably probably the my favorite one that I've heard. So Kidney Boy. Yeah. I like it a lot. Uh I think it, it says a lot about uh your sense of humor and uh yeah. Once that I was hooked I was hooked on reading your feed once I once I heard that. So people should check you out.
2: So it came from uh my first year of fellowship. Uh one of the positions as fellow was running the dialysis service and I just I felt like a, a traffic cop. I was like, You get dialysis now, you guys gotta stop, we'll get you in a couple of hours. And it was just like directing traffic on Main Street. And I just I, I changed my uh my beeper handle to be a uh, uh, kidney boy of da 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 kidney boy. <laughs> and the, the, the nephrology nurses just would laugh. They thought that was so funny. And then, and then years later, I was looking on Twitter. I was like, Oh, I'll go with kidney boy.
0: It's just great. I love it. Well, uh, we are. Yeah. So we're really excited to have you on the podcast. I, you've done a lot of cool stuff that we'll, we'll get into some of it. And, and if not, we'll definitely link to your, your blog and, uh, and your Twitter feed. So people can enjoy that and check it out. I wanted to ask the question I've been asking recently for people, what are you best known for as a doctor or as a nephrologist?
2: So um, I was early into social media. I was one of the first uh, nephrology bloggers. There were just a couple ahead of me. This was back in uh, 2009. And and I've been blogging since then. And it really – uh, whenever I go to a, a nephrology meeting, I'm always, uh, I always meet people that I've never, I've never seen before, but they are like, Oh, I've been reading you for years. <laughs> and, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's this kind of weird micro celebrity. It's a lot of fun, but yeah, I think that's probably what I'm, I'm most known for. And that has then evolved into Twitter, which is like blogging with people listening. It's a lot more fun actually. And there's a back and forth communication.
0: Yeah, if you look Twitter up in the literature, they call it microblogging. So I guess that's kind of mm-hmm. blogging too, technically. But th- so when when you're at a cocktail party and and a lay person asks you uh, what you do, how do you answer that?
2: Well, I, I I tell them that I'm a I'm a kidney doctor, and then there's this um, really uncomfortable silence as they rack their brain for anything to say that would make it all sense to a kidney doctor and they have nothing, right? Like if you're a cardiologist, like everybody has an uncle that had a heart attack. If you're an oncologist, Oh, your mother got breast cancer, or you had a positive mammogram. Like there's so many common experiences that we touch with a lot of doctors and kidney doctor, there's nothing. They, they look at me like they they literally have no idea What I do, you know, when when I go to work, you know, uh, and then you kind of explain. Well, I I take care of dialysis patients, and and it's amazing. Like as soon as you say dialysis, everybody knows. Oh, there's a dialysis. There's a dialysis center near where I work, or I see one on my way to work. Like dialysis is actually pretty ubiquitous, and people have a lot of contact with that, but somehow they don't connect that uh, to kidney doctor.
1: So I I recently had the. The uh, distinct opportunity of reading this wonderful book. It's called the Fluid Electrolyte and Acid Base Companion. What's your favorite book?
2: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is uh this is a Burton Rose's uh, tour de force. It's called the Clinical Physiology of Electrolytes and Acid Base, and it is uh, like I read that book and I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like it it was. It is so beautifully written. It is so clear. It does such a great job of building that model of how the kidney works in your brain that once you've read it, you're like, oh, I get it all of a sudden. And, and everything makes sense. Did you it's happen just, to read that before or after you uh, wrote this book? It was the primary source material for the book. <laughs> okay. It really was. We we bought, we bought a lot of ele- uh, electrolyte kidney physiology books uh, to do this. Okay. And, um, and almost all of them barely got cracked. Like, uh, myself and my co-author, just became addicted to this book. And, um, this guy, Burton Rose, he's the guy who created up to date. Wow. Right. Right. So, so I, you know, and I think maybe the most important person to medical education, right. Since Osler, right. I mean, he's, he's absolutely uh, incredibly important. And, uh, and he wrote he wrote he wrote this book, and then there was a companion book about just kind of glomerular pathology, and that one I think was one edition, and he never rewrote it. But the fluid and electrolyte one went through four editions. Every one of them is great, and you can um, you can date nephrologists by asking them what color their cover is on their Burton Rose. Huh. It's a rite of passage in nephrology.
0: It sounds uh, like the the pocket medicine book by I think it's Sabatine, uh, the MGH pocket medicine yeah, book. Mine's it's red. A, my, my yeah, mine my medical school was red. My residency yeah. was green. Now it's like purple. Uh, it's a different color now. I think it's like mauve. It's even uh, I it don't is. even know what that what know. that is. Uh, but just to jump back because I don't know that the audience was in on that uh, inside joke. Uh, so the fluid <laughs> electrolyte and acid base companion was written by Doctor Joel Toff, which. Uh, so and it's it's free on his website. Once
1: and so available at Amazon.com for thirty dollars and sixty three cents.
2: Okay, it, which was which was the I think the original cost was twenty nine ninety five. Yeah. We did we did one printing of it. I think there was twelve hundred. There's twelve hundred printed copies out there in the world.
1: You can still buy three new from thirty three ninety five. There you and go. Three copies available. Yeah. If you send it
0: to Dr. Toff he'll probably sign it for you. Okay,
2: no, I'd be I'd be delighted to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Sir, what what is a great medical app that you can recommend to the audience
2: or any app? Yeah, so for me, when I have medical questions, uh, I I go to Twitter that I have a community of nephrologists and uh, doctors that I follow and follow me. And if I have an interesting question, uh, I can pose it to them and I will get incredible answers back. And they're, they're sophisticated and they're evidence-based uh, or some of them will be opinion-based and some of them will be evidence-based and it is, it's, I call it the answer machine. It's absolutely an incredible resource. You know, it's like, I it's like I have an entire uh, department of medicine that lives inside my phone. Uh, so I am, I am addicted to Twitter. I think it's just the most incredible uh, invention ever. And so that would be my favorite medical app. Um, the other one that I love is I love flashlight. Do you guys have this application? Uh, Yes, I think we all do. I'm like
0: the first, the first one up and the last one to sleep in my house. And I am constantly using that thing so that I don't step on Legos as we were talking about earlier. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I use it to look at patient's
2: eyes. Yeah. All the time. Patient's eyes, fairings, uh, wounds, right? Like that application gets used a lot and it's, it's awesome. I love that. I have a flashlight with me all the time and a bright one.
0: Yeah. I, I want to jump back to what you said about Twitter there and make sure that everyone took in how amazing that answer was yeah. and how everybody should probably be trying to duplicate this and, and build, build way. this network. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so I, I, I think I took it, looked at it the wrong way. So when I joined Twitter, uh, initially I was doing this for news. I was just following a bunch of news sites and I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, this is kind of like, I get like five different newspapers sent to me. And then I, I tried to do the same thing with medicine But you're following people, and you can pose questions to them, so it's more interactive, and you're all helping each other out. And that is a lot more fun, and also probably you get some answers that you would not get from a textbook or a journal or something. Yeah, and
1: I I had never thought about it like that, to be quite honest. And uh, I think that's, that's completely changed the way that I would look at it.
0: Do you know, have, have you and your network just like, have you, have y'all published this? I mean, it sounds like something that, uh, we should, uh, be publicizing or just like kind of trying to get other people to do.
2: Hmm. So, uh, uh, in the nephrology kind of cohort, we have really worked on developing uh, a really good network for people to join. What we have is we have uh, a couple of different events that happen on Twitter to bring people together. So one of them is... uh, we do a journal club twice a month. So we did one uh, two nights ago on immigrants uh, that have, there was an article in uh, JAMA, Internal Medicine, about the experience of immigrants with end-stage renal disease and how do they get dialysis in states where they're not able to get into a chronic dialysis unit. And these people live by going to a dialysis, getting dialysis in the ER once or twice a week. And they need to be sick enough to qualify for dialysis, and so they're they're always holding out to the last minute so that they they know their potassium is high and their oxygen levels are low because the worst thing for them is to go to the ER, get evaluated, and told that they're not sick enough, and to go home and wait six hours or twelve hours and come back. And it is it is such a harrowing story. It's a it's a, a it was published in a journal and it was a it's a you know they'd have a, a whole method section to. Go through this narrative, but it's just a, it's a narrative and it's absolutely, uh, mind blowing. And we had, uh, I think we had 90 people join us on Tuesday night to talk about that article and lots of people that live in these types of states that take care of these patients and they could give firsthand accounts of this. Lots of people, uh, we had some people from Central America and Mexico, uh, that had other views on this. It was really interesting. But one of the meta purposes of these is to bring everybody together and you start to follow other people that have similar interests, right? It's not so useful uh, to follow Beyonce when you want to know about nephrology, right? You need to have other nephrologists. We call it a – we want to develop a personal learning network. And the difference between good Twitter and bad Twitter is getting that – the right number of people following you and and for you to follow them. And these kind of events – bring people together we have another one that starts next Tuesday called um uh, Neph Madness and this is a uh, this is a spoof on March Madness so instead of a field of 64 basketball teams we have a field of 32 nephrology concepts divided across eight different academic regions
0: and how do you how do you decide who wins <laughs> that's crazy
2: Okay, yeah. So the yeah, the obvious question is well, how do you determine winners? So what we have is we have uh nine uh members of a blue ribbon panel that vote on every one of the matchups. So there's uh 31 matchups to go from a team of uh field of thirty-two to one champion. And uh the blue ribbon panel is awesome. We've got uh uh past and current president of the National Kidney Foundation. We have uh the American Society of Nephrology's um She's the director of uh, of the uh, graduate medical education. Uh, we have a professor from NYU and a professor from Harvard. Uh, it's a it really is a star studded cast. We had a couple of people that complained about it early on. We said, well, if you think you can do better, we'll bring you onto the blue ribbon panel. And uh, this will be our our fifth year, fifth year of doing this. And uh, the hashtag nef Nef madness is all over Twitter. And again, it's a great way to build that personal learning network. I met a lot of my friends on Twitter through Neff Madness.
0: That yeah, I I think this stuff is just so cool. Uh, Stuart Stuart and I both very interested in medical education, and this kind of innovation is just great great to hear. So I guess the last question uh, that we'll ask you in this upfront round here is: tell us something about yourself that we will never forget.
2: So we kind of touched on it a little earlier as I, I wrote a book called the fluid electrolyte nascent based companion when I was a resident, I was a med resident and, uh, and I had started this project that I thought would take about a year and ended up taking a four years. It was, uh, myself and a friend from medical school, Sarah Fauble. And, uh, so as we were trudging our way through residency, we would get a weekend off and we would be just buried behind textbooks and and a laptop computer as we tried to write this 500 page textbook.
0: Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah.
2: That's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> that well, it's not provide balance in your life.
0: I think, I think what you were saying to us in the pre-recording, you were saying that your, your day job some, to paraphrase you was something about your day job feeds you and your night job feeds your soul or something like that. So I guess, uh, writing this book was feeding your soul, right?
2: Absolutely. That's exactly. Right.
0: Well, before, before we take too much of your time, we should, we should move on to the main topic tonight uh Stuart, Stuart and I wanted to talk to you about diuretics. It'll kind of, probably we'll touch on various topics, but right. diuretics and, and treatment of high blood pressure. And
1: Yeah, so before we get started, uh, one of Matt's favorite questions is always to ask uh, if the guest can paraphrase a topic in a Wikipedia-like format. So in this case, could you give us a Wikipedia-like introduction to diuretics?
2: Diuretics are uh, selective poisons for the kidney. They allow you to poison very specific elements of the kidney to allow you to influence how the kidney will work, specifically to increase the excretion of sodium, and as a consequence of that, water. And we have a variety of different diuretics, and what determines the class is what aspect of the kidney that they antagonize.
0: So, how much? I guess the part of what part of what I was trying to do in prepping prepping for this was try to remember. So, I actually majored in physiology in undergrad, and I'm sad to say that I, I have I have lost a lot of the physiology that I knew because once I became a physician, there's only so much of it that you need to know. Now, if you're a nephrologist, I think it kind of lends to uh, it, it lends itself to kind of keeping up with this a lot more, especially renal physiology. So, what is the What is the basic renal physiology, Um, and maybe we can go one diuretic at a time, that that people should know, that that they really need to know in order to be able to use these medicines and anticipate how they're going to affect their patient?
2: So the functional unit of the kidney is the nephron. The nephron starts with the glomerulus, which is just a, a basket filter, a colander, right? And so it keeps out the protein, and it keeps out the red blood cells and white blood cells so that all you do is you get a filtrate that goes through that, now, uh, the filtrate that goes through there is incredibly high, right? A normal GFR, call it 100 cc's per minute. Now, we only have, uh, we have five liters of blood, and we have a normal hematocrit of 40%, so that's 60% plasma, and 60% of five liters is three liters. Now, at 100 cc's a minute, in half an hour, you would have filtered all of your plasma. You'd be done, right? You would be dead long before half an hour. And so the essential component after the filtering, after the glomerulus, is you need to reabsorb almost all of that water. And somewhere between 95 and 99% of that water is going to be reabsorbed. And that's the primary role of the rest of the nephron. And if you've walked through it, the next step is the proximal tubule. And I consider that, I call it big dumb reabsorption. Not a lot of thought there, but two thirds of that filtration is reabsorbed. The next step is the loop of Henle, and the loop of Henle is the engine of the kidney. This dilutes the fluid, the tubular fluid. So if you want to make dilute urine, that's what happens in the loop of Henle. But at the same time that it's diluting that fluid, it is generating a concentrated medullary in your stitchum that allows you to reabsorb water in cases when you're dehydrated and you need to retain water. That is powered by the loop of Henle. Then you have the distal convoluted tubule. And this is where you start to add a lot of intelligence to the kidney. You get, again, additional reabsorption of sodium and water, but this is going to be more finely controlled. And then you finally get to the cortical collecting duct, right? We've all been tubules before there, proximal tubule, loop of Henle, distal convoluted tubule. Now we're at the duct, the, dist, uh, the cortical collecting duct, and this is the real brains of the kidney where the final tuning of the, ki- of the fluid is done. Potassium is secreted, hydrogen is secreted, and then you have urine after that a pretty good summary of where we're going to be.
0: Yeah, that's great. Okay. I okay. I think I forgot most of that, but it it yeah. all sounds very familiar and uh it all makes sense. Yes.
2: Excellent. And so from there you can kind of get a sense of how things are are going to work. One of the one of the things that comes up is that that proximal tubule because it does that big dumb reabsorption if we had an effective diuretic that would shut it down in the same way that a thiazide shuts down the distal convoluted tubule or a furosemide or loop diuretics shut down the loop we would be dead it would not be survivable the only way you can shut that down and survive is if it's just not very effective and so that's going to be your acetazolamide that's going to work there not very effective because if it was effective it would be lethal Right. And you can even think about that in uh, the RTAs, the proximal RTAs or the type two RTAs. And again, if they were completely effective, they would be unsurvivable. They're only partially effective there. They only partially will block uh, secretion there or they, it's just because there's just so much happening. Two thirds of uh, filtration is reabsorbed. There's a huge, you know, uh, major metabolically active area.
0: So we have we have these areas of the tubules. We have our loop diuretics that are going to work on the loop of Henley. We have our thiazide diuretics that are work and thiazide like and and thiazide like that are going to work on the distal convoluted tubule, right? And you mentioned the What am I missing here? Spironolactone, yeah, the
1: potassium sparing. So that's a more late distal convoluted tubule.
2: And the and the osmotic diuretics, uh, mannitol, which really act. Uh, throughout the entire kidney, uh, sometimes they'll be people will point to the proximal tubule, but they'll really work throughout the entire tubules. Yeah, I guess you could you could probably
1: put uh, the SGLT two inhibitors in those too, right?
2: Right, SGLT two inhibitors really are proximal tubule uh, diuretics. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: It also adds, it it acts osmotically too, right?
2: Well, right. That's how all of them act by blocking reabsorption you, the, you yeah. have now have an osmo- osmotic load that stays in the tubule and that osmotic load is going to hold sodium back. I see. Right. Right. Because, you know, because when, if you, if you, if you walk through the kidney, right, there are no water pumps anywhere. All the water movement is passively following solute. Hmm. Right. There's water, there's water channels, right? There's the aquaporin channels in the cortical collecting ducts, but those, those channels open and then water will passively flow down into the, um, concentrated medullary interstitium generated by the loop of Henley. All you've done is open the door and then the water flows down its concentration gradient. Yeah.
0: So I think we can definitely, and we'll naturally talk more physiology. That, that's a good review of how the kidneys are working. And, and what we really wanted to bring this to is where as d- providers, we're using antihypertensive agents on a daily basis and just kind of how we can think about them when we're using them. One of the things that, that uh, I've been taught, and I, I just want to verify with you if you think of things these way, this way, but based on somebody's level of kidney function, hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalosone versus loop diuretics, you might not have any effect if you're trying to use hydrochlorothiazine in somebody with CKD4, and you really have to think about that. Are there uh, cutoffs for EGFR that you think of when you're using those agents?
2: so uh, I, what you've been taught i think is the that's the the dogma and i think it's a great way to think about this that you want to use your thiazide type diuretics down to a gfr of about 30 and that as you go south of 30 you want to start to transition these people to loop diuretics i think that's exactly right though there is research that does show that these thiazides do work at low gfrs they key is you need to titrate up the dose. You just can't rely on that 25 milligrams of HCTZ that we're taught. Um, you need to use a higher dose. And I've heard at GFR four, uh, GFRs south of 30, they're talking about 100 to 200 milligrams of HCTZ. I never use those doses. I don't use hydrochlorothiazide. I think it's a lousy drug. I, I'm, a bi- I'm a big fan of chlorthalidone. A large part of my practice is uh, hypertension referrals, and a, a standard move I get when I have a patient—they come in, they always are on an ACE HCTZ combination. Right. And they're also, of course, on. By the time they get to me, they're on a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker. So I switch them to a ACE calcium channel blocker combination pill that pulls the thiazide out, and I swap out the hydrochlorothiazide for chlorothalidone, and that change alone gets a lot of patients to goal.
0: You were saying chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide. Can you tell us why you like chlorothaladone better? Is it, it Was there studies that showed it, it lasts longer or it's more effective, or is it just kind of obvious when you start using it in practice?
2: Okay. So it's obvious when you start using it in practice. It is way more effective. Uh, and a lot of it just comes from the pharmacokinetics, that uh, the half-life of chlorothaladone, I think, is two to three days, right? This is a drug that you literally can use three days a week and patients will be fine. So you have that patient who's not real reliable with their medications. Chlorothaladone is a great choice. Um, hydrochlorothiazide half-life is like two or three hours. So that's why, I mean, you, you, that drug is going to be wear off pretty quickly. Um, it will lower the blood pressure a little bit, but it's just not nearly as effective at chlor- as chlorothaladone. And so- and in fact, when you make that switch, if you make a milligram for milligram switch from hydrochlorothiazide to clothalazone, if their blood pressure is pretty close to goal with the HCTZ, you'll probably overshoot with the chlorthalidone, And likewise, you'll see more hyponatremia and more hypokalemia because it's a more effective diuretic. So you need to be careful. You know, we need to be careful for those types of side effects.
1: So I I was always told that HCTZ was was used more often because patients can rem- remember it better. But there's got to be a better reason.
2: Yeah. So I looked up this. I tried to figure out why HCTZ is so much more widely used. And I, I was told it was just a, a much more commercially successful drug in the marketplace. Right, right. And not, not for any reason, but better marketing, better manufacturing, better Partnerships, right? It's the drug that it combines with all the other drugs when you want to get a combination, which is something that's super appealing to patients, right? One pill, two ingredients. Mm-hmm. People love that. Um, and I wonder, and I wonder if some of that comes from the very long half life of clopidogrel. Do you want to mix a drug with a very long half life with a drug like uh, lisinopril that has a half that has a half life of six to ten hours? Well, if you're
1: selling pills, then yes, right. Because you I don't know. Pills. Maybe,
2: maybe you want to get in a combination pill. Maybe the idea is to get half lives that are similar, that you want to get pharmacokinetics that are much uh, more aligned. Or, I, 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 you I, know.
1: I was more, I was more re- referring to from a, from a, I mean, you can cut this out of the podcast, but from a drug company standpoint, if I can sell more pills, that means I'm going to make more money, which means I'm going to be able to market more versus chlorthalone. If I'm only selling three pills in, you know, a week and that's all it takes, you're not going to make as much money in the long term.
2: Yeah that may, that that may be it. I I really don't know what happened behind the scenes and with pharma to result in that hydrochlorothiazide is everywhere um but there's a uh there was a I, I kind of feel foolish that I don't know the name of the trial but there was a large hypertension trial that started out uh, it was an international trial and some countries were using um, hydrochlorothiazide and other countries were using chlorthalidone, and they were getting these crazy results where the countries that were using hydrochlorothiazide were getting a lot more events. And in the middle of the trial, they said, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Everybody's got to be on chlorthalidone." And so it's one of these great kind of natural experiments where you can actually see chlorthalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide, even though they were never really designed, well, the trial wasn't designed to put them head to head, kind of by accident, they did get head to head And, um, and I'll find you the reference so you can put it in the show notes because it's a really, it's a great example. And there's just, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Clothalidone just whips the pants off of hydrochlorothiazide. That's the drug you want. Another,
1: another, another thing that I've been taught. I don't, again, I don't know if this is true or not. Um, because of the benzothiazine in the hydrochlorothiazide, this is why you have more of a, more of the endocrine side effects. So hyperglycemia. Um, and some of the other uh, endocrine side effects is that it, it, do we see hyperglycemia as often with chlorothalidone as we do with HctZ?
2: I'm not aware of endocrine differences with the drugs. Okay. Um, in terms of the side effects that I usually worry about, I'm really mostly worried about the electrolyte abnormalities, and I think there are significantly right. more with the chlorothalidone. but I've not looked at cholesterol and and glucose i just i don't know that's a good question
0: dr toff i i want to ask you this question this comes up all the time for me when i have someone on a thiazide diuretic and they they start to have this hyponatremia sodium's 130 maybe it's 129 you know 129 to 32 132 when i check what do you do with that i I kind of just ignore it. I'm like, oh, they're on a thiazide. That's why it, why it's happening. Do you do? Does that change anything for you when you see that in your patients?
2: I'm kind of a nitty. I'm I'm pretty nervous about hyponatremia. I, I I don't like seeing those sodiums. I think 132. I might give it a pass there, but if I see 129, I'm stopping the drug. Okay. And probably and probably at 132, I would titrate their do, their dose down. That uh the 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 dangers of hyponatremia, they're kind of subtle, right? Like, like that patient's not going to get central pontine myelolysis. That patient's not going to get headaches and vomiting and all that, and cerebral edema. None of those problems are going to surface in that patient. But there's two things that we've seen in hyponatremia that are more insidious is these patients get osteoporosis, right, that these patients will start to move sodium out of their bones to compensate for that hyponatremia. And as their sodium moves out of their bones, so does their calcium. They literally will demineralize their bones from that hyponatremia. And the other thing they get is they get increased fall risk. And and uh, could you imagine two side effects that would be worse together, both demineralization of the bones and more falls? It's a disaster. And uh, we get, at uh, our hospital at least, we get pretty regular consults for hyponatremia. I love it. I love taking care of sodium. And I can't tell you how many consults we get from ortho, little old lady, broken hip consult for hyponatremia, sodium 128, 126, right? And a lot of them are on thiazides. Yeah. And yeah. that's just, you you don't want any part of that.
0: Let's say, uh, I have this case in my practice a lot, little, little old lady or little old man, they're on hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothalidone at the low dose. And their sodium's 130. Maybe they're already on two other blood pressure medications. So taking them off that, it means you're going to have to go to something a little bit more unusual. Maybe you'll use unusual or not your first three drugs. So you might use spironolactone. You might use a hydralazine or a clonidine or something like that. Because um, now you're, you, you already have them on a calcium channel blocker. You already have them on an ACE now you're going to have to remove the thiazide. Um, is it serious enough that you would that you would take them off uh, if if they're in the low one thirties and they um, and it's going to mean going to one of these other drugs?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think if they are north of one thirty, I'll tolerate it. I, I, in my mind, the line of the sand would be one thirty. That okay. going below one thirty is like no, I'm not doing it anymore.
0: Now follow up question: When we start someone on a thiazide diuretic? How soon do you want us to be checking, and what's your practice? How soon should we be checking their uh, electrolytes and renal function?:
2: I do one to two weeks.
0: When you start someone on chlorthaadone, are you, are you ever starting that along with potassium? Are you, are you modifying anything in their diet to tell them, make sure that, you know now that you're on this medication, you can have low potassium, low sodium? Do you, do you give them any kind of dietary changes when you're starting them on these agents?
2: Well, well, first of all, all of your, all of your hypertension patients, you should be talking about the DASH diet, right? That should be, that that should be, come you know, stop telling them to cut out the sodium in their diet because nobody does that. Nobody can do that. And it's not all that effective for hypertension. Get them on the DASH diet and the DASH diet is rich in potassium, right? So that's, it's, it's a good, healthy diet with a lot of uh, with a lot of potassium in it, that should cover a lot of that. And the other thing is, my population is probably different from yours. My population has an average GFR south of 35, right? And so I don't see all that much hypokalemia, and I usually will wait till it reveals itself before I start them on a potassium supplement. And, and I kind of like the hypokalemia to give me room to titrate up their ACE inhibitor. Mm.
0: I see. Another thing that I'm constantly running into. Leg cramps. Tell me you have the magic cure. All my patients that are—it seems like if they're on an ACE, if they're on a thiazide or a loop diuretic, they are going to complain of leg cramps. Leg
2: cramps of all things. What have you? What have you tried that doesn't work?
0: Well, I tell them stretch before bed. Make sure they're getting enough hydration. Massage. Uh, I I try. I t- sometimes I'll tell them to do Stewart's trick of drinking uh, almond milk or eating some avocado. Uh, some people like ask me if they can take over the counter magnesium supplements, 4 ounces of tonic water. These are these are all the things. Uh one today this is le- legitimately happened to me today. Uh, an 83-year-old guy goes, they gave me this at West Point and it was like a pill bottle from like before 2000 and it had 300 some milligrams of quinine Nice. (laughs) and he's like should i take this and i was like no sir what was the expiration (laughs) date on
1: that like 1992 (laughs) it was like it was literally
0: more than 17 year old quinine and he was asking me if it was safe for him to take it i'm gonna say no
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh So uh, forever I was, uh, with leg cramps, I was measuring calciums and potassiums and giving calcium and potassium supplements and they would come back and said, doc, it didn't work and nothing. And I just, I was frustrated. And then, um, and then I had a, uh, a patient with, uh, Gittleman syndrome, right? You remember Gittleman syndrome? This is a, it's like a congenital loop diuretic. These patients have an abnormality, um, a loss of function mutation in their distal convoluted tubule so it's like they were born on high doses of um hydrochlorothiazide and so they all have uh uh hypokalemia hypomagnesemia and uh, low blood pressure and these patients are tremendous um uh, salt fiends they just love to eat salt right cuz they're 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 salt wasters by nature and uh, they told me, yeah, when I get cramps, I take pickle juice.
1: Pickle juice?
2: Yeah. I was like, really? And uh, and so I started advising at first my dialysis patients because they get terrible cramps to take a, a tablespoon of pickle juice. And it worked like a dream. And now I use it for my diuretic patients. Now, it is a significant sodium load. So you don't want them to be taking it all the time. But for that, the, the, when they get these Charlie horses in the middle of the night and they can't sleep, you hit them with the pickle juice, and I've read some articles since then that have looked at this. This is a, this is a real thing that's been examined for um, for athletes, and uh, they think it's actually not the sodium load and changing the osmolality of the body. That there's something about this very pungent flavor when it hits the pharynx. It changes something centrally that relieves the cramps.
1: Have Have you tried using that for restless leg syndrome? Just curious. I do. Yeah, oh, I, I have. And have Have you had the same kind of results?
2: Uh, I'm not so impressed with my my RLS.
0: Wow, that's yeah. great! That's great. I can't. I can't wait to try that. I'm so glad I asked that. Well, you can I, it I thought yourself. you were going to be like, "Sorry, kid, I got nothing for you." <laughs>
2: <laughs> or boy. Well, and and, and make, sh- make sure make sure you you maximize the placebo effect, right? Make sure you. I don't normally tell my patients this, but this is a little secret that I was told. Or if you can have a good backstory, you want to you want to you want to increase the theater level to level ten. I'm curious. You did did he just juice. do that to us? <laughs> Yes, I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, another back to the uh, back to me giving my patients hyponatremia, osteoporosis, and breaking their legs. That's good, Matt, Um, which I feel terrible about. Uh, When
1: thiazides are good for osteoporosis, that's what I've been told. Yeah,
0: let's talk about thiazides and protecting against osteoporosis. That way, we can
2: make them feel better. Yeah, that's that's great. So, yeah, so. What we said about hyponatremia is true. You don't want to leave these patients with hyponatremia. But in all the big uh, trials, these patients would be dropped from the thiazide arm if they developed hyponatremia. So, and that's what we should do with our patients, right? We should get them off the drug that causes a side effect that's going to cause osteoporosis and falls. But that's not everybody. Most patients take this drug with no problem when their sodium is fine. In most, in those patients, which is the vast majority of them, this drug will lower their urinary calcium and where was that calcium coming from to some degree it was coming from the bones and so you are by lowering their urinary calcium you are increasing the calcification of their bones and we've got data that shows increased bone mineral density and we've got data that shows decreased fractures um there was a uh there was a meta analysis a Cochrane meta analysis and and, and, and you re- i'm reading the methods or the, or the results, and they said we had 400,000 patients. I had to go back and reread that. I had never seen such a large number. Now, that was observational data. But in observational data, 400,000 patients, 24% reduction in fractures. Not, we're not talking about bone density. We're talking about real outcomes here. And then uh, we were talking about um, the all hat trial. hat trial is a huge trial. I think it's 45,000 patients. And in the all hat trial, they went back and wasn't part of the primary outcome, but they went back and they looked at, well, how many people had fractures? And there absolutely was a significant reduction in fractures on the chlorthalidone. And that's a randomized trial. That's as, that's as good be as high quality data as you're ever going to get. And so I believe that this is really good for these patients that have uh, a low bone mineral density.
0: Hopefully, at my patients, since they're on, they're on a thia- thiazide. Uh, maybe it's balancing out me letting their sodium drift down. It's, it's like one patient that I was specifically asking about who I'm, I'm going to have to call tomorrow and, uh, pull her off her thiazide, but I'm glad this is why we do the show. I gotta, I gotta figure out what things I'm doing wrong. So I appreciate you, uh, being honest when I asked that question, Stuart, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, resistant hypertension. That's right.
1: So uh, one thing that that we do quite often, and this is this is actually as a bor- born out from the Pathway Two trial, is our patients that are on maximal dosage for multiple antihypertensives and are still not at goal, we've started to put them on spironolactone, um, starting around twenty five milligrams and titrating up to fifty if they can toler- tolerate it, based on uh, electrolytes and um, uh, I-, I guess gynecomastia, I suppose as well. So. It- what is your your take on using spironolactone as a uh, drug for resistant
2: hypertension? So I, I'm going to ask you: Is it as magic in your hands as it is in mine?
1: It it actually it, it really does seem to have been that that way for multiple patients. But I, I don't know. What do you think?
2: It's ab- it's absolutely true that this is this is one of the great uh secrets to resistant hypertension this drug aldosterone antagonists actually it's actually really all of the potassium sparing diuretics so there's okay. really good data di- uh, excuse me there's really good data also on amiloride uh, at least the data that I saw was specifically for african americans uh which is most of my resistant hypertension population but spironolactone eplerenone amiloride these are great magic bullets for that resistant hypertension and oftentimes they'll come to me uncontrolled on five or six drugs mm-hmm. and I'll get them on spironolactone and I'll be able to right. uh, peel off those drugs and they'll go from six drugs to maybe two or three
1: yeah i've it's, I've, it's, I've seen this amazing. happen i've seen this happen many times yeah and this this is backed up in the
2: literature this, There's 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 a, there's a lot of literature that supports this this is a, this is the right way to do it
1: one of the questions i always ask myself though is should i be checking a renin to aldo ratio first before i do that or just put them on it
2: so you, if they're resistant hypertension, right, if they meet the definition, so four drugs, including an adequately dosed diuretic and they're still not controlled, you need to get the, well, we'll get to it. You should get the renin or the aldo-renin ratio. Okay. Because if they have an aldo-renin ratio greater than 20 and an aldo level greater than 14, they meet the definition of primary hyperaldo. And if this is a patient that could tolerate major abdominal surgery, you need to look for a functional adrenal adenoma. You need to make sure they don't have Kahn syndrome because you could cure them with an adrenalectomy. Now, if, the, if it's your 82-year-old patient, you're never going to send them for this surgery. You don't need to worry about that. Oh, you haven't seen our patients yet. Well, okay. I mean, if you had 82-year-olds <laughs> that can tolerate abdominal surgery, go to it. I mean, I, you know, I've heard things about Texas. I've never believed them. But if they, if it's a patient who can tolerate surgery, that's exactly what you want to do. You've got to check that uh, uh, aldo in ratio. If they have that ratio is too high. So the ratio greater than 20 with an Aldo level of less than four, of more than 14. You have to have that second part because, uh, some of these renins come back like 0.01 and also the ratio shoots up really, really high. They need to have a high absolute Aldo level also. Uh, then, then you need to confirm it by trying to suppress. The aldo. So you need to make sure the potassium is corrected, and then you sodium load them with a liter of saline, and then you repeat the test. If, it re- if they're unable to suppress their aldo with normal potassium and a, and, uh, a full sodium load, then you send them for a, a selective adrenal vein sampling. And when you do this, the side with the adenoma will have a sky-high aldo, and the contralateral side will be completely suppressed and have no aldo. Once it lateralizes, then you go take it out. And, they, and it's amazing that like the patient who's had hypertension for 15 or 20 years goes from you know four drugs and poor control to uh, one drug or no drugs. It's amazing.
0: Before I tag you in as the nephrologist for this, what workup do you want me to have done for secondary hypertension? I, I find that when – because if the patient's on an ACE inhibitor or thiazide or things that could potentially mess up this testing uh, – w- how, how do you handle log- the logistics there?
2: So the, I think we're a lot more liberal than we used to be. And some of the old textbooks say you have to stop all these drugs before you do it. But the, the, the true uh, evidence-based studies, that have done population studies that have looked at this, is as long as they're not on an aldo antagonist, you don't need to worry about it. And you can just do the, renin, the aldo-renin ratio on all the drugs except for the uh, aldo antagonist.
0: That is very good to know because I, I am probably underusing that test because I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to take the person off all these medications and try to like, I don't know, what do you slap them on? Like hydralazine and clonidine or some, something like that, uh, in the meantime, uh, so that they, you're not messing with the renin system, but okay. I,
2: I, you know, the one that kills me, I had a I uh, I had a young woman. And, uh, she came in, it looked like clearly, uh, uh, resistant hypertension. She had a low potassium. I was sure it was primary though. And, uh, she was in the, um, she was in, uh, uh, the, that ER section where they can stay overnight for a, a night uh, uh, and, um, and I thought I can give her spironolactone an inexpensive drug and in control her blood pressure. But the right thing to do is, uh, is do the test. So I told her, hey, I want you to follow up in clinic, we're gonna set you up, we're gonna to try to suppress you and see if this thing's still, check a renin elder ratio, or aldo ratio. And I said, I gave her my card, and I sent her home, and I didn't see her for five or six years. Turns out she'd lost her job, she'd lost her health insurance, and the next time I saw her, she needed to start dialysis. Oh, man. And, and I and, I, and I, it just killed me. I just thought, you know, if I'd given her this inexpensive drug, spironolactone, I'm sure I would've fixed her blood pressure. And I, she would be doing fine and uh, she's still my dialysis patient. Like I still, I still see her and that mistake just, it, it haunts me. I really think I did a huge disservice for her by, by just saying, Hey, the right thing to do is, you know, got to do the test and you got to check this. Right. And especially in a young woman, you know, the, uh, that she was a, a real setup for, uh, an adrenal, uh, adrenal adenoma. But
0: who knows if she would have taken it, and I'm sure she saw other physicians in that five to six years, and someone else could have potentially started her on that. So I don't know. It's totally on you, but I, I, have, a, I have a huge guilt streak in me too, sir, so I probably, I probably would have felt the same way. Well,
1: he, he lays us up bare. Um, I've got one quick question about spironolactone. How, how real of a concern is spironolactone's uh, anti-androgen effects?
2: I think at the doses that you were talking about, at 25 to 50, you're just not going to see it very often. Now, remember, it's a competitive inhibitor. So if patients have very high aldo levels to begin with, you're going to need to use more of that drug. So when you get a real primary hyperaldo, you may be needing 100 milligrams or 100 milligrams twice a day to control their blood pressure. And at those doses, you're going to see it. But I do see it. I have had a number of men at 25 milligrams a day develop a nipple tenderness. And I always tell them in advance, I kind of feel like it's such a weird side effect that if you don't prep them for that, they won't even mention it to you. Right. They'll never they'll never make that association with the drugs. I always, I always make sure I tell them in advance and then I tell them and then I ask them at the, after at subsequent visits. Usually it's so weird that they remember it and they'll bring it up if it happens. And then uh and then and I've switched those patients to a pleurinone and uh I don't think it's as good a drug, but it definitely doesn't have the side effects. They tolerate a pleurinone with no trouble.
0: I wanna jump uh, I, I think that we're probably running out of time and we've taken a lot of your time. One of the last things I definitely want to make sure we touch on, I've been hearing a lot about this, people saying, okay, you got to, when furosemide stops working, you got to go to bumetanide or torsemide because gut, when, when patients with heart failure have gut edema, they don't absorb furosemide unless you're giving it IV. So, and also I would like you to comment on house of God dosing of furosemide, if you would.
2: Okay, so the proper dose of furosemide per house of God, I think it is rule number six, if I remember correctly. (laughs) It is age plus BUN equals Lasix dose.
0: Yes. It's (laughs) it's like my favorite thing to do on rounds is to, if I suggest to the resident, they're like, we gave 40 of furosemide, nothing happened. I said, (laughs) house of God dosing? Hmm?" And uh, usually that works when you do it. Looks like it's uh, rule number seven. (laughs) It's it's actually
1: rule number seven. (laughs) You're really, really close. (laughs) <laughs>
0: okay, so what do we? What about this gut edema thing? Is this real? And is, should we think about the the loop diuretics differently when we're when we're prescribing them?
2: So uh, when I was a resident, uh, we were a site for a randomized controlled trial of torsemide versus furosemide. Oral administration for heart failure. Now, it was open label, and when that study got published, it did show a significant reduction in hospitalization, right? No difference in mortality, but you wouldn't expect that, right? You'd expect people that got decompensated heart failure would show up in the hospital, and they'd all get IV drug, and then they'd be fined. But in terms of keeping people out of the hospital, torsemide was more effective than furosemide, And I think that old rumor that you get better absorption, better bioavailability really does hold up. If you look, there's a great review of diuretics from 1998 in the New England Journal of Medicine. The author is Craig Brader, and uh, he was our he was our program director, director when I was in uh, a resident. And uh, and there's a chart in there which gives you the bioavailability. Remember, the bioavailability is the ratio of um, uh, an effective uh, oral dose to IV dose. So a drug like Cipro, which has great bioavailability, has an uh, has a bioavailability of 100%. There's really no advantage to giving Cipro IV. And then a drug like vancomycin or insulin has zero bioavailability. You can give all you want orally, none of it's absorbed. And um, the bioavailability of Lasix in that chart is listed as uh, 10 to 100%. You either need to multiply the oral dose by 10, the IV dose by 10 or by one somewhere in between there. And the or, uh, bioavailability of both Bumex and torsemide is listed as 80 to 90%. So very reliable oral dosing. And that's been my experience also. So, and then the other advantage that torsemide has is its uh, its half-life is about two or three times as long as furosemide. And so you can get away with once daily dosing with torsemide, uh for antihypertensive effect that you really can't with furosemide so I'm a I'm a believer in the 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 differences on this class
0: so House of God probably had it right. They're probably doing BUN plus age for an 80-year-old uh, who's absorbing 10% of it. That's probably why you need to use so much. So maybe maybe it
2: works. The other, the other aspect of that calculation is that, remember, these drugs, all the diuretics, work on the tubule side. They don't work from the blood side except for spironolactone. They have to be filtered for them to be active. And so as your GFR falls – you need to compensate by going up on the dose, which is totally counterintuitive, right? We are always used to renal dosing being lower doses in renal failure. Well, not when it comes to diuretics, it's higher doses in renal failure. So that's your age plus B U N. What I use is I use a creatinine times twenty to get my Lasix dose.
0: And uh is that the top method or
2: did did you name it? No. I did not name it. it was, I, I did not come up with it. So some resident smarter than me taught me it. <laughs> okay. So I, I I always kind
1: of thought it was because uh, feroce- it, it is, is insoluble in water versus torsemide is actually water soluble. So I, I always thought that it had had to do something with with uh, absorption across the uh, the the GI tract due to its solubility, not necessarily just. I mean, I, I, I that, that's the way that I think about it.
2: Right. Well, yeah, no, I think in terms of in terms of oral absorption, I think you're exactly right. Uh, the higher dosing in renal failure is not from the uh, oral absorption. That's no, no, from no. Uh, at the kidney, at the level. Right, of the kidney. Right. Now, these, now, these drugs, I, I did misspeak because I spoke I said that they were filtered. All of these drugs are highly protein bound and they're actually uh, secreted in the proximal tubule.
1: Right. 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 Um, another question that I had was was for dosing Lasix. So I, I was I was speaking to uh, one of the nephrologists that I work with, and uh, he was telling telling me when I sat down and went over some of these before we were going to talk to you that if you dose Lasix once daily, then you end up having a uh, a sodium retention. Uh, in the evening time when you would typically dose or redose Lasix, because it's just a, 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 the way that your body is responding to the natriuresis with the first dosage of Lasix. Is, is there some clinical implication to this, this, this sodium shift, this diurnal sh- sodium shift, if you don't redose sodium twice daily versus once daily?
2: Right. So, I mean, I give a lecture on dealing with uh, a diuretic resistance. And so there's two patterns to diuretic resistance. So one pattern is you give them a dose and they just don't pee. And that needs to be overcome by increasing the dose. And there's another pattern where you give a dose and they make great urine, but you come back 24 hours later and the total urine output's just not that impressive. They peed a lot for those two or three hours after the dose and then they did pee at all for the rest of the day. And that's because the patients that we're, Giving these diuretics are naturally very sodium avid, and soon as the drug wears off, they're going to become sodium avid again. Mm-hmm. And so, when you see that pattern, you need to increase the frequency. And so, if you look at the at the pharmacokinetics, I mean, Lasix really should be a, a q six hour drug. It lasts about six hours, right? right?
0: It's almost like – but isn't it cruel to give a patient Q6 Lasix because it's just no, going to be around – It's wonderful. They're going to be waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, I guess that's why I tell patients to take it at 8 a.m., 2 p.m., something to that effect, so that they're hopefully it's out of their system by the time they're going to bed.
2: Yeah. I mean you – know, or or you give them torsemide, and it's uh, longer-acting, and so you don't have these peaks and troughs so much.
0: We want to wrap up, but just some things to kind of recap. You were you were saying that for patients with renal failure, it sounds like you're you're kind of talking about the Lasix threshold, which is where you give a dose like let's say this happens all the time. Patient comes in, they're they're an older patient. uh, They get twenty milligrams IV Lasix instead of forty or or eighty, and they they get twenty. You come back within an hour, they really haven't started to pee at all. So what do you do there? Do you, do you wait until that dose wears off? Do you do you give another 20 or do you just give them the bigger dose on top of the 20 because the 20 didn't do anything? I'm, I guess I'm kind of asking about stacking of doses.
2: Yeah, I don't worry about stacking. The drug doesn't last that long. I go with 40 milligrams. They don't pee within an hour or two. Just double the dose and go, go try again.
0: So give the dose that, that you thought you were going to give. Okay. And then also, if you're using Lasix as a blood pressure medication, uh, obviously because of the half-life, not an ideal blood pressure medication, but is it true that it really needs to be done twice daily in order to get that effect for most patients?
2: Yes, it is true. You need to do, you need to do twice daily or torsemide once daily.
0: Dr. Toff, I I mean, this is a lot of great information. I am going to, um, I'll let you know when this is going to come out. Probably, It'll be a little while because we do have like five five or six episodes that we've recorded right now, now that we're at weekly episodes, but it'll be, it'll probably be next month sometime that this will come out. Uh, I wanted to ask, we've been talking about blood pressure, diuretics. Can you give us a couple take-home points that you want our listeners to really remember?
2: Okay, take-home take home points. Uh, one, one. Uh, if you're going to be using a, a diuretic, a loop diuretic, you want to dose it appropriately. So make sure that Lasix uh, times, uh, tw- creatine times 20 for Lasix dosing. Cut that in half for torsemide. Use Lasix at least twice a day uh, for heart failure. Torsemide you can use once a day. Bumax, very short half-life, even shorter than furosemide, which means it's great in the ICU, right? Short half-life. Means very quick onset of action. So when you absolutely positively have to have that urine bag filled now, bumex is your drug. Okay. Uh, thiazides always use chlorthalidone. Never use hydrochlorothiazide. Make sure you check their calcium, their uh, potassium, and their sodium. Hyponatremia is a real problem, and those are the ones that get sick because the sodium drops very fast. In resistant hypertension. Be quick, I think you should be quick to reach for the aldo antagonists. I'm a big fan of spironolactone, uh, 25 milligrams daily. Be careful about that potassium, especially if they have CKD stage three or they're elderly. They will run into hyperkalemia, so you'll want to watch that. And then, new piece of information that's actually pretty cool is if they have, if you're dealing with uh, nephrogenic uh, diabetes insipidus. Letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. Showing that um, acetazolamide is wildly effective at reducing their 24-hour urine output. Um, the textbooks tell you to use a thiazide-type diuretic, and this acetazolamide just beats the pants off of it.
0: Great, thank you so much, sir. Any questions for us before we let you go here?
2: I think I think the stuff you're doing is great. I think you guys. Uh, I've been I've been. Uh, just it's the, whatever that new, uh, curbsiders pops up on my, uh, my app. I, I, it's the first thing I read. I listen. I love it. You guys are doing great work.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we feel absolutely the same about you, sir. Uh, very, very glad that we've met up with you via social media and, uh, would encourage our listeners to start following you on social and checking out your
2: blog and your book. And I want to see you. I want to see you guys in Death madness. I'm going to be looking for your entries. I want to see. I want to see some curbsider entries there. Okay, right, we'll, we'll see what we can do.
0: That sounds awesome. All right, sir. You have a great night. You take care. All right, take Bye.
1: care.
0: Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter, summarizing key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Practicing alliteration, I see. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on our page on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. Here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and No
2: Paul. Good night.
0: Paul is sitting in a dark room with one of his cats watching his 150th movie of the year. Hmm. He's ahead. (laughs)